music has a distinct function. It's a tool for survival. It helps heal. It helps placate. It helps one mourn. It actually has a distinct function. It's not solely entertainment. It's a, a tool for survival. It's medicine. Coming up on In Contrast, the music of Iperus with Christopher King. I'm Ilan Stavans, and In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. Christopher King describes himself as an auricular raconteur and sonic archaeologist. A collector of 78 RPM records, he's a remastering engineer, producer, and author specializing in pre-war rural American music and music from Eastern Europe, the Balkans, and the Mediterranean. In 2002, King won a Grammy for his work on Screaming and Hollering the Blues, the worlds of Charlie Patton. To begin, here's Christopher King reading from his book Lament from Iperus, an odyssey into Europe's oldest surviving folk music. I am a record collector. The type of disc with which I am obsessed, the 78 RPM phonograph record, is made of slowly decaying organic materials, bound up together and coated with synthetic compounds. Like most of the music that Blacking studied in the 1950s, it is a relic of the past, a fossil. These curious black discs are all that connect us with the best part of our musical past, with the rapture that we were once able to convey through deep song and dance. These records are fragile, yet they were the dominant medium of oracular permanence and commerce for roughly the first fifty years of the twentieth century. When I was young, I discovered that seventy-eight recordings, unlike so many other parts of contemporary culture, needed no outside validation just an attentive, appreciative listener. I was the listener, and the artists that made them were my friends. They were constant. People would betray you. Institutions would fail you. But this, this old music, a music lacking all pretension, would never change. Old performances on 78s transformed me. They become a singular point of reference. I understand my musical surroundings, perhaps even my physical and cultural environment, through this antiquated medium. These recordings form an aperture through which I make sense, or perceive the senselessness, of the world. In my view, classical music is cerebral and aspires to a lofty yet groundless culture that few can enter. Contemporary popular music, which permeates every aspect of life from eating out to shopping for shoes, is over-researched mass-marketed vacuous tripe, a dulling, inescapable, even sinister noise. I understand many people have strong attachments to contemporary music, but I cannot deny what I hear. In modern music, I hear self-centeredness, a constant referencing of individual artistic expression. It's all about the me. But in the old music that I love, I hear selflessness, continuity, and communal expression. It was all about the we. Christopher King, welcome to In Contrast. Thanks for having me, Alon. I want to start with an attempt to get you to describe exactly what you do. You're a collector. I've seen you described as a detective, an archaeologist. How would you describe what you do? 
Yeah, I guess all those things kind of qualify. I more or less consider myself just a deep listener and one who likes to be able to write about the experience of listening. But the particular media with which I'm obsessed, the 78 RPM disc, kind of makes me qualified as a sonic archaeologist just because of their age. How has your collection grown over the years? If you could see it from a distance, in that growth, objectively, from the very first moment, the very first item that formed the collection to the present? Well, standing in the immediate present, I think of it as quite vast, but the collector in me wishes it was much larger. But when I started out collecting when I was 15, it was essentially just a small stack, 18, 20 discs, and now it's around 5,000 discs. What is the collection hoping to achieve? What is the view that a collector has of centralizing in one space of the universe items that relate to one another and that create a narrative? What is it that pushes you forward? Mm, that's a good question, Ilana. It's, to me, the collection, it has nothing to do with monetary value, but rather has a way of acting as a lens or a prism through which we can understand the world. Because the discs, when they were made, they captured sort of a, a sonic space, a way in which people both made as well as consume music, which is quite different from the way that we do it nowadays. So it's almost as if they are a fossilized relic that we're using, that we're interpreting through various ways, through anthropology, sociology, philosophy. What is it in your personality that wants to collect, bring items together, an obsession, a passion, maybe both together, of bringing into one space? Well, some would say it's a sickness, hmm. uh, and I probably wouldn't disagree too much with them. There is an obsessive aspect to it. But as I was talking with one of my friends the other day, it has little to do with completeness, having X number of discs that represent every recording by a particular artist, but rather it's having examples of music from a given genre or from a given group so that you can best understand how that group maneuvered or navigated the world. So it's kind of like a sampling, a sampling by which we can use to understand the past. You have described yourself as not a musicologist. That is, you did not get training in what you do. And that makes me think that this type of passion or obsession or, or sickness, as you mentioned, is something that is not done by training but by happenstance and one stumbles upon it? The best way of describing it is that you're, you're either born that way, you're born with that proclivity to obsessively arrange things around you and then interpret things through them, or else you kind of fall into it like a trap. I guess the big distinguishing aspect between, say, being a trained musicologist and being one who was born into it, like I guess I would be, is that for me, I see the value not in terms of objectivity of trying to remove oneself from a given culture or society in order to understand its music, but rather to immerse oneself in that given culture or that given society mm. so that you can understand the function of music within that group. So if you're born into it, Chris, you can't escape it. You are fated to be this gravitational figure that brings these items together. Yeah, it's something you can't help. Yeah, you must do it or else you're miserable. But then when you do do it, you're also miserable. It's just a different kind of misery. <laughs> 
tell me about your senses. In what way is the hearing sense more dominant than any other one? Or do they all live happily with each other, but you just make a stand with the act of listening and the art of listening? Well, I would say all the senses are somewhat subsumed under that of hearing mm. because it becomes quite acute when you're listening to these old discs and you're uh, remastering them. You're trying to get at the things that can't be heard on a normal frequency, on a normal range of hearing, and those are the things you're focusing on. So it has a tendency to cause the hearing to take place above precedence of all other things. Did that happen when you were a child already? Can I imagine you accurately already collecting maybe not music but, but other items, maybe building with those <laughs> items and also paying attention to the sounds that they made in ways that other children did not? Uh, it's odd you should mention that. I mean, yeah, I can't quite remember when I wasn't collecting something obsessively mm. or doing things like collecting arrowheads or Civil War musket balls. But, of course, Civil War musket balls and fossils and arrowheads, they don't make a sound. Maybe that explains why I got hooked on it, because it suddenly grabbed a hold of a completely different sense that was alien to those other ways of collecting. An archaeologist, certainly also a sonic archaeologist, is both for the right reasons and maybe also for the wrong reasons an outsider. In other words, benefits from not being from a particular place in order to be able to appreciate that place with some objectivity. Do you see yourself also as an outsider? Yeah. That's a huge folly to think that one can become a native. You can't become a native of anything. You are a native of what you happen to be a native of, and there's no way out of that. I did get a very nice note from a Greek reader a couple weeks ago who stated that it was surprising to him that there was an American, a quote-unquote outsider, that knew more about this part of Greece than he did, and he came from there. And when I replied back to him, I said that that's an overstatement. I don't know more about this particular region of Greece. I just happened to see it through a completely different lens, through the lens of music. Do we Americans collect in different ways that Europeans would? Or was there something more to that word? You, American, knowing more about Greece, maybe instead of any European that would be closer to Epirus or any other part of Greece? I think that even people that live, say, 200 miles from Iparos, they have no way of penetrating the culture. There are people in Iparos who can't penetrate the culture. Mm. So it has very little to do, I think, with proximity or being European or American. I think it has more to do with just sensitivity or the ability to lose oneself, a way of surrendering a lot of presuppositions that one has about the way that things work. That's what allows you into a given place. And the other way that you have been described as a raconteur, you describe yourself that way, and a raconteur uses words to tell stories. And in your case, you are telling stories through words about music that often doesn't have words. Your relationship with words, Chris, do you, when collecting, when taking 78s in and out of your collection, when putting them on the turntable, Are you speaking to yourself? Are words narrating your action? Yeah. Part of the mechanism that is at play is that I've been a relatively lonely person. So therefore, I have a lot of inner monologues with my records, which I consider to be my friends. Hmm. But then also, when I was much younger, I lost the ability to speak for quite some time. 
And so uh, I kind of lived in some sort of deaf mutism. I guess that does cause one to be rather articulate about things that are difficult to be articulate about. Tell me more about that deaf mutism. Was it an accident? Was it an illness? And no, it was a, a bullying. If you saw me, you would understand why people wanted to beat me up. And But they no, did, was, and then you... Yeah, and they did, and they did, and they did, and then I, I, I kind of like lapsed into solipsism and silence for a little bit. Mm, which makes me want you to talk about silence then and now. I guess all words are made of silences in between them, and all music is a harmonious way of sound and the absence of sound. How do you relate to silence? The question of silence among pieces of music, say, from northern Greece, is quite important. The pauses that you place, they emphasize certain notes. So when you're playing in a pentatonic scale, in a five-note scale, placing the silence in the exact right place where it ought to be is going to emphasize either the middle or the beginning or the end of a particular passage. And that's kind of the secret of the music there, is knowing, particularly when you pause, when you introduce or you allow the notion of silence to enter in. Let's do, Chris, through sound, what a movie would do through images. Can I ask you to describe Epirus, the place in northern Greece, for our listeners? It's a vastly terrifying, endless place. From any proximal point of view, the horizon is infinite. It is endless. It's the kind of place where you're there and you feel dwarfed by the magnitude of everything around you. In the mountains? Yeah, it's an incredibly mountainous region. It's not what people think of when they think about Greece. People think about Greece, Americans especially, they think about the sea and the sun and the sand. And although there is sun there and there's a little bit of water there, it is actually a very mountainous and some might even say inhospitable region where agriculture is not really much of an option. People do a lot of sheep herding and goat herding there. It's primarily wooded, hilly, craggy, difficult to access. The isolation of the region and the fact that so much of the livelihoods were built on this concept of raising goats and sheep, of being reasonably self-sufficient and at the same time having to form protections against the various external invasive forces. I think that's what shapes the character of the people there more than anything else. And of course, the music. Realizing that Greece was under the control of the Ottomans for so many years, that has also shaped the music, particularly in, in Epirus, especially in the area of Zagori, where I spent most of my time and most of the time of the book takes place, where various forms of music were introduced and rather than taking over like an invasive species, bits and pieces of it modified and adapted and grafted onto the musical landscape. And in the role that that music has played, one can also see a prism of community in general, society and culture, shepherds and dancers and mourners and others. The music is... What, Chris, the companion to all this, the lens, the, the what to the culture? Hmm. To me, it's almost foolhardy to try to separate out music from the culture. Hmm. I mean, I think the music there is culture. It's the highest manifestation of the culture because it speaks more deeply and more profoundly about the people than anything else that they do. Because... In Epirus especially, and you could say this also throughout Greece in various regions, music 
has a distinct function. It's a tool for survival. It helps heal. It helps placate. It helps one mourn. It actually has a distinct function. It's not solely entertainment. It's a, a tool for survival. It's medicine. And this music has been in northwestern Greece. There are references to it in the Homeric narrative. Is it possible to imagine how the music has changed, or has it remained the one constant in a region where change historically has been decisive? Well, it would be overly uh, romanticizing the point that things haven't changed because things always change. And we are left at a loss with how to compare what music may have appeared to sound like 2,000 years ago or 2,500 years ago versus now. But there are aspects that we can piece together, a narrative, and that's what I discuss in the book, that based on the archaeological record of, say, flutes found in Ipros and the way in which the clarinet is now played, we can imagine that there was this continuous thread stretching from now back to then and how it could possibly have changed. It's just we can't fill out the particulars. Hmm. Let's hear one piece. You want to make a reference to it, Chris? A piece that I think would illustrate this point would be Kitsos Harisiadis uh, performing his Skaros. And Skaros has two different definitions in Iberos. One, a skaros is the traditional time in which a shepherd would take his sheep and his flock out around midnight to uh, graze and to take water, but also to collect themselves through the dangers of the night against the competing shepherds or bandits or wild animals. The musical definition of skaros is a piece of music not meant for dancing, but rather for contemplating and surrendering one's senses to, where the whole community tends to reflect on being a flock, to sort of like acknowledging their um, dependence upon one another. Let's hear the Skoros by Kitsos Harisiaris. <laughs> Thank you. 
book, aside from Kitsos Hariasidis and other figures, probably the one that struck my imagination, the one that I felt had a central role as a protagonist is Alexis Zumbas. He was an immigrant, came to the United States. He has an interesting and mysterious and somewhat tragic story. You give him a lot of space. Tell me about him. Well, upon finishing the first draft of the book, I realized I could very well have rewritten it completely from the point of view of Alexis. That's how intimate I became with his story. But he essentially uh, left Iparos at the end of the Second Balkan War, moved to the United States, to New York, and made a handful of recordings. Then he played a variety of circuits in the United States and then died in 1946, and that's the bare outlines of his story. The thing is, he took on almost a mythological status among certain people from Iparos who had constructed these elaborate tales of him both murdering and being murdered and all the espionage involved. But in reality, he was just like any other Greek at that time. He left for America so that he could send money back home. In what sense is Zumbas's journey, the journey from Greece to the United States, from the music of Epirus to the music that travels beyond the regional and national borders, affect that music both for the good, for the better, and for the worse? Well, I would say that Zumbas's music impacted the overall musical landscape of America in almost no way. What he was basically playing were tunes that are hundreds of years old, and in the case of the Merloi and Skados, are thousands of years old. I think what was more interesting for me was to hear a man's translation of traditional pieces of music from northern Greece who essentially moved to New York and only returned to Greece one time. So therefore, he didn't really have a chance to influence the music in America or in Greece. Whereas, uh, say, a person like Kitsos Harisiatos, who never left Greece, left a profound influence on two or three generations of musicians and dancers there in Ipros. Why does he become such a magnetic figure for you? Mm, I think it's because of his Epratiko uh, Miraloi. When I first played that disc, I could not understand what place sourced this music, what dismal, aching, dark place of the human soul could produce a piece of music like this.
a recording from 1926 of Alexis Zumbas of Epertico Merloy from a compilation by Christopher King of Zumbas's recordings made between 1926 and 1928. You see somewhere in the book a thematic relationship between Zumbas' lament and Blind Willie Johnson, a Texas blues singer, particularly with Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground, his 1927 recording. Why don't you expand on that? Well, that's a real mystery because hearing those two pieces of music side by side, you realize that certain elements of music are universal but also primeval. Both pieces of music are played in the pentatonic scale with virtually the same structure back and flow between the major and the minor of the pentatonic. They're both played in the key of D. They both use a series of motifs and embellishments repeatedly, and they're both deeply spiritual pieces. To me, the real majesty and mystery is that, of course, Blind Willie Johnson was black and playing on a sly guitar, and Alexis Zumbas was a Roma from northern Greece playing on a violin. The fact that these two pieces of music are virtually musical brothers speaks of both the mystery and the depth this primal expression that we've always had with us. Let's hear the piece by Blind Willie Johnson. Ah. Uh... 
In this connection that you're establishing between Blind Willie Johnson and Alexis Zumbas, might one be able to say that beyond the confines of the artist's ecosystem, there are larger forces that might replicate in two distant, unrelated places something that you have described as a mystery. It almost sounds as if you describe them as spiritual brothers. And I would like to push you just a little farther to say if that is because there are certain traits in music, in folk music in particular, that given certain circumstances might emerge unrelated from one another. The way I think about it is that both Zumbas and Blind Willie Johnson, they weren't artists. They were conjurers. And music itself is not an abstract expression. It's actually something very viscerally felt, like magic. And so the fact that two conjurers drawing from the same bag of tricks can do what they do, it does speak that music has this profoundly fundamental aspect to it that is shared across humanity. Because you find that scale and that repeated use of those notes, you don't just find them with Blind Willie Johnson and Alexis Zumbas. You find them all over the world. How would you describe a conjurer? In what way is a conjurer not exactly what an artist is? If you could turn yourself into an impromptu dictionary right now, <laughs> what would that definition be? The basic difference is, is that, to me, an artist is someone who sits down and they practices by rote over and over again a series of notes in order to reproduce a particular piece of music. A conjurer, on the other hand, knows that by arranging a certain series of notes, it will have a desired effect. Hmm. You talked about Zumbas as being from and of the Roma people, and the Roma people have been itinerant travelers, wanderers, and music has played an essential role in that journey across diasporas. Develop the role of the Roma in connection with the Epirus music, please. Mm. All people at all times have had music throughout all of history, but I think the Roma in particular to the region of Epirus, they are the handmaidens. They are the people that actually know how to deliver the goods of the music, or at least traditionally that was the case. They may have lived on the fringes of acceptable society, but they were valued specifically because they knew how to pull the heartstrings. And in the case of conjuring, they knew how to rearrange the things in their bag of tricks in order to make you cry or to make you full of joy. Do you think that it is the role that the Roma have had as outsiders that have also helped them shape this type of mood in music? That's a difficult question because it does compel one to uh, either romanticize the Roma and the music or else to just take a starkly realistic perspective of it. I'd like to be able to embrace both. Hmm. I do think that because of the status that the Roma had, that maybe the degree of suffering that they did experience helped them to tap into certain parts of the pathos, but I don't think it was fully responsible for it, no. 
In the book, well, you use the title of Lament from Epirus. I sense a reaction, a negative, strong reaction, Chris, against the type of effect that globalization has had on music these days. Do you see anything positive, particularly when it comes to folklore and other types of traditional music styles? Yeah, I hate to be a killjoy, but no. I see something positive in the aspect that one can hear more easily nowadays than at any other time, authentic expressions of a people's music, of relatively unchanged music. But I do think that the process of globalization has an, a preponderance of flattening of expression because no matter what, it makes everything sound more samish than more different. And I guess I value that notion of difference. When we listen to a piece of music and then we intentionally take parts of that music and graft it onto another parts of music and we create a hybrid, there is a risk of flattening the overall expression, the overall character of that music. And that's the thing that I guess I take issue with. But don't you think, and here obviously I want to be more polemical, hasn't globalization been around for thousands of years? Of course, we use the term today to describe something that is very concrete, but the invasion by the Ottomans of Epirus, the changing tides of history that have defined that region in many ways are also part of that arrival of other cultures that swept the local culture and redefined it. I agree with you, but I don't think that the term would be globalization. Mm. I think the term would simply be influence. So, yes, of course, Ottoman domination introduced certain aspects into the musical culture that were not indigenous. But with the music of Ipirus, they absorbed that. They took parts of it. They utilized it. But there were other core elements that maintained integrity is probably a good word. But what I'm talking about is not just simply influence of one culture or two cultures, but the influence of the monoculture is what I identify as globalization. This sort of incessant need to make everything sound samish, like world beat. Samish is a word that you've repeated and sounds like incredibly destructive. To me, it is a thing which annihilates identity, particularly mm -hmm. cultural identity. Our need to feel accepted by flattening out things, by making us seem more unified rather than simply being ourselves. One word that I haven't seen, and maybe it's implied, Chris, in all the definitions or self-definitions of you, the way you are portrayed, is historian. And yet, of course, what the book Lament from Epirus, an odyssey into Europe's oldest surviving folk music, is that it's a history, it's a rich, multifaceted mosaic of historical information. And I am going back to one of the thoughts that you mentioned at the beginning, that you don't have training as a musicologist and that there's a passion and that you stumbled upon it and that you feel this, this commitment. Is there in you an embedded desire to see others follow in your footsteps that other people also rescue from other endangered regions of the world, music like this, providing context and historical background? Well, I guess I would take issue with the question. I don't see myself as saving mm. anything. It's actually the people of Greece that are actively engaged in playing the music. They're preserving it their own selves. I happen to be one who stumbles across it 
And so I do feel a profound sense of obligation to describe the history, as you say, to be a historian. But by no means do I think of myself as some sort of saint who's out to save the music because it doesn't need saving. Of course, everything is endangered. But the last thing that an endangered species needs is an outsider to come and rescue it. That's what the actual biosphere is about. The people of Iparos, they preserve their music, they save their music because they value the music. I'm an innocent bystander. I have seen mention, Chris, that you are either have moved or are thinking of moving to Epirus. And if that is the case, might one be able to describe you as somebody who's going from the outside to the inside? I certainly hope nobody describes me as that. <laughs> because I'm entertaining no fantasies of becoming an insider just by simply moving myself from one place to another and immersing myself in the language. I will always, always, always be a poor kid from Southwest Virginia who happens to be obsessed with old music. But to answer the former part, I have every intention of moving myself to Greece to continue this life work of understanding the folk music of Greece and the surrounding regions. And plus, I have several changes of clothing there. <laughs> I'm coming to the end of our wonderful conversation, and I have one more question. And that is, circling back to the beginning, you mentioned that there's no monetary, that is, financial interest in you in the collection. But what happens with it when you're no longer here? Were you able to control destiny In your absence, where could it be and how should it be? Hmm. Well, as a man who every morning, noon, and night contemplates his own mortality, that's a good question. I think it's a supreme act of hubris to think that anyone's collection has a value in and of itself beyond the systematic placing of one object next to another. So therefore, there's very little value in preserving the intactness of the entire collection. But because of the way that I collect the Mautica, Greek folk music, and the music of Epirus in particular, there is a value in the integrity and the wholeness of the collection. And so I would hope that upon my demise, which uh, I hope will be in about 130 or 140 years from now, <laughs> that there will be an institution that will safeguard the integrity, the wholeness of it. As far as the other parts, I hope that there will be other collectors past me who will be able to acquire them and enjoy them. Let's go out with some more music. This time, a contemporary musician, Pedro Lucas Halkias. Tell us about him. Yeah, well, Pedro Lucas Halkias is, one, is among the most highly regarded clarinet players of northern Greece. His father, Pericles Halkias, moved to the United States after the end of the Second War, And he himself was a uh, very well-traveled musician throughout North America and Greece, traveling back and forth. Petro Lucas represents this continuation of the legacy of his father, if not the whole clan of Halkias. Let's take a listen. <laughs> Thank you. 
I have very much enjoyed this conversation. Christopher King, thank you very much for coming and being part of In Contrast. All right, thank you, Lon. A collector's obsession is rather simple. To congregate in a single space objects disseminated all over the universe. But such simplicity is deceiving because the universe has its own order. It places objects in apparently random ways, although such randomness is only superficial. The disorder we perceive has its own logic and raison d'etre. Giving a new order to things implies courage. It also requires an assumption that the alternative sequence has more meaning. There is something godlike in this attitude. I have been a collector all my life. I have a personal library with antique books. I also have dictionaries in all sorts of languages and an assortment of volumes, including first editions from certain authors I love, Cervantes, Borges, Garcia Marquez, Neruda, Bashevi Zinger. There are also my own archives, manuscripts, personal correspondence, books I've produced through marginalia, posters, playbills, photographs. My relationship to the collection has changed over time. I used to go a long way to gather disparate items. Their arrival would make me feel whole. I enjoy creating a semblance of completion, although I'm always aware that completion is impossible because the universe keeps on moving and more items are found and produced, and it's a never-ending quest. Lately, though, I feel less like a collector and more like a dispenser. I don't want to accumulate items but give them away. I'm beginning to consider placing my collections in the hands of an institution whose patrons might use what I've accumulated. That is, I'm at the stage where I don't want to keep things but give them away. It's another type of obsession, the finding of a home. Reorganizing the world for me is no longer attractive. Now it's about depositing that reorganization in someone else's hands. Maybe all this is part of a cycle. Chris King's collection is a map to his passion. It is a supreme statement of what a person does with his time and energy, a microcosm where disparate items are shelved according to the meaning the collector has given them. A well-groomed collection is like a prayer or a scientific discovery. It makes a statement about who we are and about how we relate to our environment. Next time on In Contrast. I see the writer's voice or the true voice expressed in other art forms too. If I see a beautiful dance or listen to music, it's something about truth, like being totally stripped away, raw truth. Like we're not going to varnish it. We're not going to be polite. We're not going to pretend everything is okay when it's not okay. There's something about really trying to get to the complexity and nuance of what the lived experience is like and getting at the truth. That's what I'm trying to get to for me with like the writer's voice. Author Grace DeLucen on the next In Contrast. Let us know what you think about In Contrast. Review us on Apple Podcasts or send an email to radio at nepr.net. You can also follow us on Facebook, where we invite you to share your comments on this program and others in our series. Our intern is Delina Hatgo. 
Our music is by the Fresh Cut Orchestra. The executive producer of In Contrast is John Vosey. I'm Ilan Stavans. Thank you for listening. In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. Quixote Productions.